the simplification agenda in which I serve in the General Synod of the Church of England doesn't stretch to sermons yet, so you're in for a full-length one. Um, but, uh, the, um, I can remember uh, what the man said, but I can't remember who he was, I'm afraid. He, he was something involved in horses, uh, either a jockey or a trainer or an owner, uh, and the horse had just someone, won some big race or another, the Grand National, I'm not sure. It's a good story, this, isn't it? Um, anyway, um, anyway, but anyway, this man had won a good pile of money uh, on this race, and he was asked by the interviewer on telly what he was going to do with the money. And this is the bit I can remember. He said, I'm going to give it to charity. And then he paused and carried on and said, and given that charity starts at home, I'm going to keep it all myself. It was a good gag, although, of course, for him it wasn't a gag because he really meant it. But I've never forgotten his remark because it threw up for me a question of where charity should start or rather particularly where it should end, where it should stop. If it's not just a question of looking after ourselves, where does the line come? Should we just look after our immediate family or our wider families or the people we live nearby or the people who live in the same village as us, or our area, or our country. Recently, the UK international development budget has come under pressure in some quarters. You'll probably be aware that the UK government has, for the last four years, lived out a commitment to give 0.7% of GDP to international aid and development, something for which very many Christians campaigned at the time. But the argument runs in some papers, if there are people waiting for operations on the NHS, shouldn't we focus just on the UK instead. And it's not just a political question, it's a personal question for many of us, I'm sure. It seems to me that as we live in an information-rich age in which stories of need are rapidly reported, we easily find ourselves at one of two extremes as we see stories of people in need. Either shutting up the emotional drawbridge and saying, I can't be doing with all that. I can only look after myself and the other people are responsible for their choices. Or at the other extreme, we let open the floodgates of guilt and helplessness as we see a world in need and say, it's all so dreadful. I'd love to help, but it's so much hard work and I can't change the world. If you've been on the underground recently, you'll have seen posters for the stage play and Inspector Calls being played on in the West End at the moment. It's a brilliant exploration by J.B. Priestley of exactly this question. You might know the story of the industrialist, Mr. Burling, successful, self-made man with an ostensibly successful family, working on the basis of the former view that he is only responsible for his immediate family and cannot be held accountable for the actions of others. And yet, as the play develops and the inspector travels and tracks through the various impacts of his decisions, this view that it's just him and his family is held up to scrutiny. But I won't spoil the ending. And it's not just a political, a personal, or an ethical question. It's also a question for us as a community of believers here at HTC. Our vision this year is to grow as a loving community, modelling God's love to the world. And this term, we're looking at how Jesus built that community of people who were to love and follow him. But the question is, who is this community called to love and show mercy to? And what might be our motivation to do it? How far, if you like, does a loving community go? 
Well, those are the questions that we're going to be bringing to our Bible reading this morning from Luke chapter 10. It's a hugely familiar story to many of us, I'm sure, even uh, those of us who perhaps haven't opened our Bibles for a long time. Because the Good Samaritan is a term that has entered popular culture and is used to justify a pattern of behaviour which is characterised as caring for others. But I want to suggest that there is more going on in this story than simply the Good Samaritan himself. At the very least, I want to suggest this is a story as much about a lawyer and his heart as it is about the Good Samaritan. And what I want us to do this morning is get under the skin of this lawyer to whom Jesus told this parable and find out what he's asking Jesus about. Because if we understand that, I think we'll understand the message of the Good Samaritan much more clearly. And we'll find out what the motivation for us showing mercy might be and how it goes far beyond just being nice to others. If you're here this morning just exploring Christian faith, you want to find out more what it's about, I hope you're going to see this morning that while following Jesus does involve showing mercy to others, the reason why Christians do that is a whole lot more exciting than it's a good thing to do. And if you're here this morning as a committed follower of Jesus Christ, I hope you'll be challenged in your understanding of how a loving community shows mercy and be refreshed in your motivation to do just that. So perhaps you take your Bibles and open them with me to, to Luke chapter 10, which we're going to look through together this morning. There are Bibles in the seats in front of you. There's a, a, a batting order that shows where we're going. I think it's on pink bit of paper. Uh, it's page 1042 as we're looking at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37 together. Luke chapter 10, page 1042. There's two points I'm going to be making this morning. First of all, a loving community is about showing mercy rather than drawing boundaries. And secondly, a loving community is patterned on the mercy shown by Jesus Christ. Okay? Let's get going. First of all, a loving community is about showing mercy rather than drawing boundaries. Let's get under the skin of this man to whom Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. He's described, if you look there in verse 25, as an expert in the law. Now, that doesn't mean he was good at tort and mergers and acquisitions. That's not the type of lawyer we're talking about. In the Jewish context of this story, an expert in the law would have been an expert in the religious law, the Torah, based on the first five books of the Bible, but added to in many ways since then. This man wasn't a religious skeptic. He was at the very top of the religious hierarchy. He knew every jot and tittle of the law. But it's not what he knew that I want to look at closely this morning. It's what was going on in his heart. Because as Luke tells the story of this man's encounter with Jesus, we see a man who is proud and self-reliant. First of all, look with me at verse 25, where it says, This expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. This is not a man sitting at Jesus' feet ready to learn. No, no, no. This is a man standing up to put Jesus on the intellectual rack. Here we see somebody who has a confident heart and proud as well. He wouldn't be the first man who knew a lot to fall prey to that particular sin. Then there's the question he asks in verse 25. Teacher, he's asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life, by the way, here, doesn't just mean the life that happens when you die. Eternal life describes a life with God which starts now that is fully inhabited by God and continues beyond death. 
But instead of saying, how can I receive eternal life, this man, masks, this man asks, what must I do? He thinks it's all in his hands, and he just wants to check that Jesus has the right answer. But basically, he's in charge. And the third sign of this man's heart is his final question to Jesus. For Jesus says to him, he gets him to quote the law on loving God and loving neighbor there in verse 27. These were both quotes from the Torah and were probably widely known at the time as a summary of the law. And Jesus says, well, keep going on these two priorities. He then gets to the question, who is my neighbor there in verse 28? And this is the question which we need to understand correctly. It could mean, show me who who I am to love. Who is my neighbour? It could be, well, come on, show me, I want to get out there and love them. But look at how Luke introduces the question in verse 29. He wanted to justify himself, so he asked. And I think this makes clear that the man is asking his question in a very different way. He sees the words, love your neighbour as yourself, as potentially a great get-out clause. You know how cunning these lawyers can be. He sees this question as a great get-out clause. He's thinking, hang on, if I only have to love my neighbour as myself, that means I don't have to love everybody. I don't have to go around loving every Tom, Dick or Harry to get eternal life. I just need to love my neighbour. So best check who my neighbour is, tick off that I've loved them, sorted. In other words, he's trying to use the language of neighbour to draw a boundary about who he's called to love. It's almost as if he's saying, my love needs to go up to that line, the neighbour line, but it doesn't need to go beyond that. And I just need to be certain where that line is, and then I can kind of love the people within it, and I don't have to worry about the people beyond it. Sorted. And I'm pretty sure that's what's going on in his question, not least because of what follows. Because Jesus then tells the story of the Samaritan that we're going to see blows that out of the water, that view. Um, I'm not going to go through all the details of the parable of the Good Samaritan, other than to show you this, which is a a gratuitous holiday snap from last year. Um, Now, this is the story where it happened. This is is the road down from uh, Jerusalem, which is at the far end of the picture, about 20 miles that way, through to Jericho, which was at my back as I was taking this picture. Uh, And it's through the Wadi Kelt, where those of you who've been to the Holy Land with me uh, will have been. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. I walked this path with friends in May last year on a blisteringly hot day. What surprised me, by the way, was not right there, is just how narrow the path was from, Jer- from Jericho up to Jerusalem. You kind of hear the word in the glory. It sounds like Telegraph Lane, doesn't it, this road that they're walking down? It's like a path. The interesting thing is the priest and Levite, they'd have fallen over this man, you know, Uh, And also that if this man had been left there for any length of time, he'd have been dead. There was no water there. Um, So that's just a story. This this was a a real location where Jesus set the story. Thanks, Andy. But I want us to focus on the lawyer as he heard this story being told to him. Because he can kind of thinking as he's telling the story, hang on, he's thinking, these religious figures, the priest and the Levite, they're not coming out very well here, are they? But it's when Jesus gets to the Samaritan that this man's hackles would have risen. Because <laughs> if he was sure of anything, this expert in the law, is what the, is, it was that the Samaritans were never the goodies. 
The Samaritans were seen as beyond the pale, religious half-bloods, if you like, who worshipped in the wrong place in the wrong way. Jews did not mix with them if they could avoid it. So when this Samaritan is presented as the goody in the story, our lawyer friend would have been shocked and outraged. But it's the question with which Jesus ends the story that really packs the punch. Verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the really interesting thing is note how Jesus is using the word neighbour in a very different way. Jesus says that being a neighbour is not something somebody else is, but it's something we are. Shall I say that again? Being a neighbour is not something somebody else is, it's something we are. In other words, he's turning it completely on our head. The question isn't, who is your neighbour? but who are you a neighbour to? In other words, it questions your heart, he says. It's not about defining a line. It's sorting out your heart and whether you want to show mercy. And so the story ends in a very different place to where the lawyer expected. Instead of having a nice, clear definition about who he had to love as his neighbour and therefore who he didn't have to give a monkeys about, the lawyer is challenged to go away and to be a neighbour to others. He is called to copy a Samaritan, a Samaritan, by showing mercy to others, especially those whom he finds in his way. And there is therefore no doubt that the lawyer goes away from this story humbled. Instead of justifying himself as he hoped, he's been brought low by the challenge of Jesus. For he's been made to realise that the call to love your neighbour actually means to love others as their neighbour by showing mercy to people in need. And what about us, therefore? We need to be really clear that being a loving community can never be about drawing boundaries so that we think that we're called to love some but not others. It can never be right to go down the lawyer's argument and say, they are my neighbour, but they're not. The call to share God's love in loving others does not stop at our front door, or the end to our street, or the sign to Claygate, or even the White Cliffs of Dover. Just as there are no boundaries to God's love, so there can be no boundaries to the love that we are called to show. Instead, Jesus calls us to live out our neighbourliness by being neighbours, by showing mercy to those whom God puts on our heart and in our way. And it is about our hearts and our hands here. Our hearts, because we're called to have hearts of mercy to those in need. That is what the priest and the Levite didn't do. That's what the Samaritan did. And we're called to use our hands because we're called to show mercy, it seems to me, in particular to those whom God places in our way. See, the really interesting thing about the Samaritan in the story is Jesus doesn't commend him for showing mercy to every person in Judah and Samaria. He he commends him for showing mercy to that man on that day in that place. He almost kind of fell over, if you like. It seems to me that we can do far worse than ask, who is God putting in my way that I'm called to show mercy to? Perhaps it might be somebody at work in real need that others look down on. How can you show mercy to them? 
Perhaps it might be someone you meet in a shop or in the village or on the train or at the school gate. How will you show mercy to them? Perhaps somebody you normally walk past, but this time you feel you've got to stop. Perhaps someone you've never met, but God just lays a situation on your heart. Rather than praying, Lord, give me a quiet week where all goes according to plan, what about praying, Lord, give me a chance to show mercy this week? What might that mercy look like? It might look like time, possibly the most precious commodity we have in this neck of the woods. Simply listening or being with someone. It might mean treating someone more kindly than they deserve, not judging them and giving them a chance to learn from their mistakes. It may mean buying a hot drink for someone who is cold or a sandwich to someone who is hungry. It may mean coming down from whatever status you have to be on the same level as someone else. It may mean opening up a room in your house to look after a refugee like Kareem, who is desperate for people to show mercy to him. You see, it may be that there's someone this week where you'll be the only person who can show them the mercy of God, where you can be a neighbour to them. Now, that doesn't sort out all the political problems of our age, although I have to say that an orientation to showing mercy could do with some refreshing in our current political climate. But it does check that our hearts are in the right place. And that's what Jesus was trying to change in the man, in the lawyer that he was talking to. Who are you going to come across this week? Who's going to get in your way where God is calling you to show mercy? Will you pray for such an opportunity? Will you pray, Lord, help me be a neighbour by showing mercy to somebody this week? For a loving community, it's not about drawing boundaries, saying, they're in my care, they're not. It's about showing mercy when God calls you to be a neighbour. A loving community is about showing mercy rather than drawing boundaries. Secondly, a loving community is patterned on the mercy shown by Jesus Christ. Because it may well be that at this stage you're thinking, Philip, well that sounds lovely, all this showing mercy and being a neighbour to somebody else, but you haven't seen my life at the moment. I've barely got time to load the dishwasher, let alone show mercy to the people God puts in my way. For me, it's got to go in the nice-to-do-when-I've-got-time pile, and that pile's getting bigger by the day. I know my heart isn't where it should be, but I can't change the way I am. Well, that's why I want to look at again at the other person in the conversation with the lawyer that day, and that is Jesus himself. Because as we hear Jesus' words to the lawyer to go and show mercy like the Samaritan, we need to remember one thing about Jesus that will, I suspect, and hope change our hearts. And that is that Jesus was a man who showed mercy like none other. Jesus was a man who showed mercy like none other. That's true from what we know of Jesus' life. He showed mercy to a woman who'd been caught in adultery and was about to be stoned. He showed mercy to a Samaritan woman on her own in the midday sun. He showed mercy to a blind beggar called Bartimaeus. He showed mercy to a man cut off from society because of leprosy and touched him. Jesus was a man who went beyond boundaries to show mercy to others. But the best way of seeing Jesus' mercy is to take another look at this parable of the Good Samaritan and this time put ourselves in the story 
only in a rather surprising place. Instead of putting ourselves in either the shoes of the priest or the Levite or hopefully the Samaritan, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the person lying by the side of the road in need of mercy, facing a horrible future and in need of hope. And then imagine as we lie there that someone sees us and has pity on us and has not only pity in their heart but also acts on that pity in a way that is costly to them but life-giving to us. And imagine that we are cared for not only in that moment, but in a way that sets up a completely different future. I wonder if that rings any bells. Because I want to suggest that we are in exactly the same place as the man at that side of the road. Because we have a good Samaritan who is Jesus Christ. You see, each one of us actually is in need of mercy from God. Naturally speaking, we are, because of our own turning away from God, lost and without hope. We know that we have not followed those two commandments. We have not loved God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We have not loved our saber as ourselves, because who's we love most of all? We've most of all loved me. That's true of me. I've loved myself more than I've loved God. And therefore I find myself in need of his mercy because I have walked away from him. I find myself in as great a need as that man lying by the side of the road. My selfishness convicts me. I know I cannot justify myself before a good and a holy God. And so with all humanity we face the reality of death that will separate us from ever from the God who made us. And we are all in the same boat. We are a community and a world in need of mercy. But the good news is God noticed our need and had pity on us. He saw us and acted on that pity by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, who came alongside us in our humanity and then paid the price for our healing. It wasn't two silver coins that Jesus paid, you know. He paid with the gift of his own life. For Jesus died on the cross in the greatest act of mercy ever shown. Jesus was the ultimate good Samaritan. I want to ask you this morning, do you understand the mercy that the Lord has shown you? Do you look at the cross there at the end of church and say, surely, surely that is the greatest act of mercy and it was done for me? Now, you'll need to lay aside your inner lawyer to do that. The inner lawyer, that part of you that wants to justify yourself and points to all the good things you've done as if you could pay the price that Jesus paid for you. But if you lay down your pride and your status and your moral CV, you'll see Jesus' mercy to you even more clearly. That you were in dire need and yet he loved you and had pity on you and mercy all the way to the cross. You were an object of mercy, and I am an object of mercy. For he has shown mercy that I did not deserve. Can you say, I have been shown mercy by God? Because if you can say it with your lips and know it in your heart, that is the most important step to showing mercy to others. If we know deep down that we have received mercy we will have a heart that is tender to others and that does not stand on status but actually has compassion for others. 
I started this morning with exploring the question of who we are called to love in our world today. We saw with Jesus, the critical question is not who is in and who is out of our circle of love, but whether we're prepared to show mercy in our daily lives. Now, I'm not pretending for one moment that that sorts out all the difficult questions of what showing mercy looks like. I mean, you've probably been asking those questions I have been speaking this morning. I can't answer them all. There's not enough time and every situation's different. But it seems to me that the main thing is getting our hearts right. And the key to showing mercy to others is knowing that we have been received, received mercy ourselves. That is what the lawyer in his complacency and his pride struggle to see. But if we pay attention to Jesus, we will see the one who has shown us mercy beyond compare. I always remind myself of this. I am never called to show more mercy to others than Jesus has shown to me. I am never called to show more mercy to others than Jesus has shown to me. So as a community, I pray we will be a people who show mercy not out of duty or guilt, but out of a profound sense of thankfulness that we have received mercy ourselves from the ultimate good Samaritan, who is Jesus Christ. So can I ask you this morning, do you know that you have received mercy from God? Do you know that you were once like that man by the side of the road, in need of help? And do you see in the cross of Jesus Christ as God's mercy to you, You can have come to this church for many months, many years, and never actually made a personal response to Jesus Christ. Today might be the day when actually you say, I actually want to receive God's mercy to me for the first time. Because I tell you, there's all the difference in the world from simply knowing about God's mercy to actually receiving it in your own heart and having a heart transformed. I'm going to lead us in a prayer in a moment in which I invite you, if that's you this morning, to receive that mercy for the first time, actually in your own heart. Father, this morning it might just be a prayer that we want to echo because we want to be reminded and refreshed with why we show mercy to others. Let's pray. As I say, there may be people here this morning who have come to this church for months, perhaps even years, but have never made a personal response to Jesus Christ and his mercy. The prayer I'm going to do is based around three phrases, sorry, thank you, and please. I'm going to invite us to say sorry for the times when we have not loved God and not loved our neighbors and find ourselves, therefore, set away and apart from God in need. I'm going to help us say thank you for the fact that God did not leave us lost but had mercy on us and came to find us and meet us and in his son die for us. And I'm going to help us say please, please Lord, help me receive that mercy in a relationship with you. Sorry, Lord. Sorry, Lord, for the times 
I have walked away from you. When I have loved myself more than I have loved you and others. Thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus Christ to us when we were in need to die for us on the cross, to show mercy to us, which we didn't deserve. Thank you that he was the greatest good Samaritan who has ever lived.